can't make it quick because my horse is getting tired. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, a podcast all about the films that time forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my co-host Andrew Phillips. Greetings to all. We're going to be casting our gaze back to James Cameron's long-forgotten spy film, True Lies. How'd it go at the convention, honey? You were the big hit of the show. It's fantastic. It's, I love the computer business. For 15 years, Harry Tasker's been leading a double life. Mr. President, one of our best men is inside. Transmitting now. Right on time. I don't believe I've met you before. Rehnquist. Harry Rehnquist. Listen to the following code word. Helen. H-E-L-E-N. Now, they're about to collide. What's your exit strategy? I'm gonna walk right out of the front gate. May I see your invitation, please? Sure. Here's my invitation. Can you lean back a second? Mr. Tasker's office. Hi, it's Helen. Is he in? How is he in a sales meeting, Mrs. Tasker? It's not like he's saving the world or anything. Well, see, this is the problem with terrorists. They're really inconsiderate when it comes to people's schedules. Could you press the button for the top floor, please? Hi, Helen. Harry forgot something back at the office. Whenever I can't sleep, I just ask him to tell me about his day. Six seconds and I'm out. Maybe it's just that you're not in touch with your feminist side. Harry! Uh-oh. Okay! What were you doing here? I wouldn't believe me if I told you. You know what this is? It's a snow cone maker. Is it a water heater? From James Cameron, director of Aliens and T2. Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a Soviet MIRF-6 from an SS-22 N launch vehicle. I married Rambo. Jamie Lee Curtis. Have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. True lies. What can I say? I'm a spy. Starring the governator himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger, True Lies asked the question, what if, after killing bad guys and shagging more women than in an FHM magazine, James Bond has an average family life just like everyone else? Schwarzenegger plays Harry Tasker, a fearless secret agent battling terrorists across the globe. But his life is turned upside down when Tasker discovers his wife might be having an affair. Gunfights, explosions and emotional torturing of loved ones ensues. Um, so, yeah, before we really get into True Lies, I've got to ask Andy, have you seen this film before now? I have never seen this film before. I don't know why. I do remember it coming out, and I remember there was a uh, a BBC How Did This Get Made program on the Harrier Jump Jet sequence with all the green screen and how revolutionary that was, and I've seen little bits and pieces on the TV, but... I have to say, I've never seen this film in any substantial way before, so I was really coming at it from a first-time viewer's perspective. Had there been like any scenes that had stuck out to you, like that you knew about before watching the film? Well, I obviously knew about the Harrier Jump Jack sequence, yeah, and I knew 
that there was a sequence involving a horse yeah. in a hotel. <laughs> but there was nothing there that prepared me for what I was about to see. Yeah, I'd always just heard that it was something that was the next best thing to James Bond. Because there was no James Bond at that time. No, but no. we'll get into that later yeah. on. Yeah, it came out when I was like eight years old. And I remember the posters being everywhere with Arnie's head plastered everywhere, as it seemed to be every single year at that point. But yeah, I grew up in James Cameron much like everybody else at that time. So um, he's always been a staple in Mm. my cinematic history, let's say. And um, I'd seen True Lies plenty in the past, but it's been about five or six years since I watched it last, and I still forgot quite a lot of it. I was holding out for a Blu-ray release before I watched it again, but the film doesn't seem to be popular enough to even warrant it these days, which is strange considering just how big of a hit True Lies was at the time. Yeah. Because it was everywhere, but these days, you don't see it mentioned anywhere. I think once we get to the end of our analysis, we'll go into um, reasons why it's been forgotten, and also James Cameron's feelings towards a film today may reveal some insights as to why the film itself hasn't had a bigger outlet on uh, on home markets. Yeah. So before we get into that, um, it's time to, as per usual, give people, our listeners, a little bit of context for what it was like when the film was made. So after Terminator 2 Judgment Day, both James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to move on to a project that was lighter in tone and a bit more comedic as well. That is when the opportunity to remake uh, the French adventure comedy, La Totale, landed on their doorstep. I think it was uh, brought to Cameron by Arnie himself. Yes, it was at La Total exclamation mark. Oh yeah, can't forget yeah, the exclamation mark. You yeah. have to shout it. La Total! <laughs> but yeah, so it's one of the very few director for hire jobs that Cameron has actually taken on. Mm. Uh, the other being Piranha 2, The Spawning, that other classic. Yeah. But it, I'd say True Lies still bears at least shades of his usual hallmarks for big spectacle and arnie one-liners yes it it does on on a visual level it does but on a tone level it for me i'm familiar with most of james cameron's other films and i've watched some of them multiple times but for me uh on certain levels it didn't really feel like a james cameron film Mm. for for quite huge chunks of it i didn't feel it had as distinctive a voice as some of his other films yeah, I I have to agree. I, like I say, I do think it bears at least a passing resemblance to some of his previous hallmarks, and it does have a few of his faults. But overall, it is certainly lacking enough James Cameron input that we usually see of him, and it does stand out as an odd one out, even against other flawed films in his filmography. Yeah, it really relates to that director for high status, and even in the credits, it does say screenplay by James Cameron, but then straight after it says, based in a screenplay by yeah. all these other guys, obviously the, the original La Total script. Yeah. So one of the reasons the film was made at the time is because the early 90s were a difficult period for the Bond series, and True Lies pretty much owes its lot to Bond. Mm. It essentially acts as an overblown stand-in. Plus a lot of other things as well. Yeah, true. It, it has taken its inspiration from more than one source, but mm. I'd say it's certainly more than a nudge-nudge and wink-wink in Bond's direction. Now, Andy, you're our resident Bond expert, yes, so I'm indeed. very interested to hear what you have to say about the film. <laughs> but uh, first, could you tell us about what the landscape was for the Bond series at that time? Yeah, around about the time that this film was being planned and made, which would have been 93 to 94, the, the landscape and situation 
for Bond was incredibly bleak. The summer of 1989 was the last time a Bond film had been released, which was Timothy Dalton's Licence to Kill, which had been his second film, and that had completely failed at the box office. It, no Bond film has ever lost money, but it's that classic idea of a film underperforming. And also, that film was critically mauled at the time because it came not that long after the Roger Moore era. I would say Licence to Kill also feels a lot more like an American Yes, it does feel um, like an American Bond. That's partly due to it being set in the States and the involvement of Cherubusco Studios. There were lots of problems involving the studios and Cubby Broccoli's unwillingness to carry on the Bond franchise. He was at one point considering selling Danjak, which is the company that owns the rights to the Bond films. He was considering selling it off at one point. And even in interview, not long after the release of License to Kill, Timothy Dalton almost talks about the Bond series as if License to Kill is the last one. So at this point in the timeline, Bond is almost considered to be a dead thing. In this climate, True Lies comes along and really brings almost a, um, a buffet of James Bond references I think in terms of the style that it tries to portray, I think Roger Moore is still the clearest influence, but I also get hints of Sean Connery in there as well. I think there's also the um, License to Kill spectacle. You know, the grounded feel of the spectacle in License to Kill. It has an element of that to it as well, which is strange because it does seem to be being influenced in that way by what was considered at the time the weakest Bond film, which in my opinion is a wrong opinion. And and that's an opinion that's changed a lot over the years. I think there's a lot more supporters of it now than than there ever have been. And, And rightly so. So yeah, True Lies essentially filled this gap at the time. It was like you say, acting as a Bond surrogate in some ways, at least. In some ways, yeah. I, I'm, we'll go into that a bit later, how I think it does take things from Bond, but it takes things from elsewhere too. And also how it's influenced films that have followed it. Yeah, yeah. I could also argue that True Lies is a film designed as a reaction to License to Kill. Now, the reason that film failed at the box office was purely down to the US audience they didn't latch onto the film that well at all, even though it's the most American-influenced of all the Bonds. That's not really what they were looking for in Bond films at that time. Americans want to see that Britishness, that, you know, Team Crumpets kind of character that is completely missing from License to Kill. Yeah, and also that more light-hearted, whimsical, fantastical nature, which, even though True Lies doesn't really have the British sensibility, it, it replicates all the other aspects in spades. So, as well as being a reaction to License to Kill, are there any other connections to the Bond series? May, I mean, because I know that it shares uh, a crew member there in are, Peter Lamont. Uh, yes, in Peter Lamont, who's the production designer. Now, this is probably just coincidence, because Peter Lamont had worked with James Cameron before on Aliens, but he does lend that touch of class to the production in terms of how all the sets have been built. So there is that connection, and the the year after, Lamont would go on to, to do Goldeneye, so there is that continuity there between License to Kill, True Lies, and Goldeneye. And I must say, the production design in True Lies is quite impeccable because you do have those grand Bond sets, but also those real family homes as well. I mean, they're American family homes, so they're like mansions anyway. 
but they do feel like <laughs> little lived-in rooms. I like that they the bedroom has a little TV and the hi-fi in the corner and whatnot, and yet this is immediately after us seeing some grand castle in the middle of Europe somewhere, Switzerland, I think. Yeah, I, I, absolutely, and I do think Peter Lamont is one of the best production designers that's that's been in the 20th century. Truly, truly is. And it only goes to show that it paid off when he won the Oscar for Titanic, because no matter what you think about that film, the, the production design of Titanic is absolutely amazing. Yeah, and the attention to detail that's second saying, to none. Absolutely. So yeah, there's that connection, but I think it's more of a coincidental one that pays off because Lamont worked on Bond and yeah. it's trying to it's just one invoke of those some of those Bond memories. Happy coincidence that often yeah, happen in so. the industry. Yeah. Okay, so we've given a little bit of context about how True Lies came to be made at that time and um, what it was acting as at that time. So now I think it's time for us to actually get into the film. Um, what is True Lies about? Where do we start? Indeed, what is yeah. True Lies about? <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be about many things. It seems to be several films in one. Yeah. It's, it's three for the price of one. And as a first-time viewer, that was the thing I picked up on the most that actually surprised me how much the different ideas in the film didn't merge together yeah there is a an a plot and a b plot and sometimes occasionally they merge together and then other times one plot is completely ignored for the other plot and disappears completely and then comes back yeah there's Um, very little integration in that regard it just seems to be a film that moves in blocks yeah rather than being interwoven yeah, it does feel like the B-plot was added in reshoots and they didn't get certain cast members back so they couldn't continue certain aspects of the story. Yeah, no, it, it does <laughs> it absolutely like that. have that feel to it. Well, let's start off at the beginning where we yeah. have our big Bond opener. And this is where the film feels most like a Bond film. It even opens with a Bond gag. Yeah, I do enjoy the sequence. The only thing I don't like about it is the old adage of having the credits roll throughout the sequence, which makes it feel like a TV movie. It's a bugbear of mine. It really gets on my nerves to see credits mm. over over footage in a film. Because where am I supposed to be looking? Am I yeah. supposed to be paying attention to these names or the people on the screen? It tears me in two. And yeah. another film that does it recently is terminated genesis and it's awful and actually going back to bond there's another film that true lies resembles quite strongly and i'm playing on the idea of americans trying to make a bond style film so there's a couple of parallels here between this film and uh, never say never again which is the unofficial bond film starring sean connery which is a remake of thunderball unofficial and unfortunate film yeah and that suffers from the same problems in its opening title sequences in that it has all the captions over the action that film does suffer in other ways because it has an awful theme tune going on over this. Oh, of course, yeah. But in execution, title sequences like this are always going to be detrimental to what's going on in the action. Yeah, I feel like it's just a cheat as well to stop mm. uh, the credits from rolling twice at the end of the film because I know it's a rule that players' credits, all of the um, main crew members and cast must be shown twice during a film, maybe at the beginning yeah. and at the end. But it really gets on my nerves when it's played over footage and unfortunately true lies falls into that gap Mm. when everything else on the screen is screaming bond but it hasn't got that famous title sequence it feels odd yeah and and it needed that yeah and also when it hasn't got that music yeah because that's the next thing i'm going to talk about now the music in this film actually starts off quite well i do like the main theme of True Lies that plays over the actual title sequence. I think it's a great theme. I wish there was more of it. But unfortunately, the the score being composed by Brad Fidel, 
whose main other work has been the Terminator films, which works for those films entirely, but is is far too electronic for this kind of film. Yeah, there's a mechanical and electronic element to his music, which really works well thematically for the Terminator films, but here it just feels out of place. It's screaming for John Barry, or even David Arnold at the time was working and working well. Yeah, there's only so many times when you can put synth double bass into a picture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because even over some of the other action sequences, you get that synth double bass, and it really gets on your tits after a while. In in actual fact, the score that you can probably compare this the most within Bond Eric Serra, is Eric Serra's GoldenEye score, which I'm actually a uh, a fan of. I know not a lot of people are fans of that score. I do like that score because it gives it a uh, that film a melancholy edge that I feel some of the other Pierce Brosnan films lack. Yeah, but um, yeah, I think that there there is a bit of a problem in the score in terms of setting the tone of the film. Yeah, so at this castle, it opens with a, I would say, a great Bond gag, a classic Bond gag, Mm -hmm. and it's trying to play on that, where Arnie breaks through the ice in a lake just outside of the castle grounds, and obviously takes off all the scuba gear, and Mm -hmm. he's got, what, like a three-piece suit underneath, just perfectly. It really reminded me of the opening of Goldfinger, where there's a, a model seagull on top of James Bond's scuba gear <laughs> and it's a and he gets out and he's in his in his white suit. Yeah. From the very first introduction of Arnold, it's really telling you that this is a Bond homage slash parody. And as it goes from there he joins a party and this is the first time in, in a long time we've seen Arnold Schwarzenegger in an in an environment that really suits him because he's getting to speak in his in, in French and Austrian yeah. and he's getting to play to a more European crowd and he actually fits in, other than like in the Terminator where he just looked like a bodybuilder walking yeah. through LA. He really fits in. He he actually does fit the mould of a this secret actually, agent. um this aspect I really liked, and it's actually frustrated me that Arnold hasn't starred in more films that have a European setting, because he wouldn't stand out so much. He would blend in as an actual credible character. I think all too often in his films, he's portrayed as the American family man, which he's, he isn't. Yeah, he really, he really isn't. He's <laughs> and not. he always stands out, which sometimes plays for the comedy, and it, and it does make him endearing as a, as a movie star, but... Sometimes you you would like to see Arnold in a slightly more realistic setting. Yeah, the average Joe, he is not. And although that this film does play on that, yeah. and it almost works at times, but it still feels very odd because you are looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's the thing with Arnold Schwarzenegger is he's never playing a character. He's always playing just Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And it really works for films like The Terminator that really play to his range. But here, I think um, there's a duality that's demanded of the character that he's playing that it doesn't quite pull off. And I think it's actually in the writing as much yeah. as it is in the performance. But for that brief 45-second section of the film, I really felt that Arnold wasn't being Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was really surprised at that moment. Yeah, I, I would agree, and um, I really like the beginning of this film. Mm. I love it, in fact. I love the play on Bond. I love the action sequence that it builds into, which is uh, quite reminiscent of On a Majesty's Secret Service, yeah. actually. It, only because of the setting, really. Mm. Um, and the skiing. And the skiing, obviously. Mm. But yeah, this is we're introduced to all our main players, Arnie gets to say. We're introduced to Tom Arnold and Grant Hesloff, who, who played the uh, backup crew surveillance yeah, team. The voices in his ear. Yeah. What did you think about Tom Arnold in this film? Well, I'd only really seen Tom Arnold in the first Austin Powers film <laughs> with the uh, 
hey boy, what did you eat? And uh, <laughs> don't pull out your oil ring and all that oh. kind of stuff. And I'd heard that he was in a film called The Stupids. I've seen The Stupids. I've it's, never seen. It's, to say it's stupid is an understatement. It's <laughs> fucking awful. <laughs> but um, apart from that, no, I, I knew that he was in this film, which I always thought was an odd thing, seen as his character in Austin Powers. But um, yeah, I did like him in this film. And he is a uh, a very good comic foil for Arnold's character. Yeah, I I really enjoyed him in this. I thought he was yeah. quite funny. And like you say, he played a good comic foil to Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was quite funny in himself when it's demanded of him. I thought Tom Arnold brought a naturalism that counters Arnie's Austrian oak. You yeah, know, it, yeah. and it works. It works for a lot of the film. And um, it's weird that we've never seen Tom Arnold in these kind of roles again since, really. Yeah. Where he's playing the comic foil to the big action hero. I mean, I know it's a very kind of niche role to be chasing, but it's, yeah. it's certainly there. I, I, the I know he has championed a true lies to uh many times oh, and we, that's something we'll get into much later on i think his retirement hinges on it really yeah <laughs> <laughs> and also grant hasloff who appears quite briefly at times in the film but uh he's gone on to become george clooney's right hand man yeah and, and a half decent director in himself yeah i yeah. mean he's had a, a couple of dots i like the men that stared at goats yeah. that was a very yeah, good film is. very entertaining but um, it's weird at the time Grant Hesloff was in films like True Lies and Congo as the comic foil. But in this film, he's the comic foil to the comic foil. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's His character's rather unnecessary, but it's always good to see him in a film anyway. Yeah, he only really comes into his own in the last 10 minutes of the film. And again, that feels more like a reshoot than it, it does, does an actual yeah. we'll, integral we'll get part of that the film. We'll get that a bit later, and there's, there's quite a few issues with the, the last, well, fourth act of the film, I was going to say. Yeah. Also, during this sequence, we're introduced to Tia... Is it Tia Carreri? Tia Carreri, yeah. Yeah. Of Wayne's World fame. Absolutely. And I feel she's almost like the Bond girl that could have been. Yeah, yeah. I I, I can absolutely see that. She does really feel uh, like a a classic Bond girl, a femme fatale figure. Yeah, she's one of the elements that does feel like ripped straight from Bond. I know that it plays on a lot of Bond throughout, but a lot of the people that are playing on Bond don't actually feel in place in a Bond film. Yeah. Where she... She could be taken from this film <laughs> and just dropped into any Bond film and, and fit it. Yeah. Oh, like Roger Moore era Bond. Yeah, although I do feel her uh, artifact dealing backstory does stretch credibility somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the whole Denise Richards with the glasses on and suddenly she's a scientist. Yes. It's that whole element. And unfortunately, Bond did not learn from this film in no. that aspect. No, he did not. This film could never really be described as being realistic, but uh, this character is good in some aspects but in terms of her profession the character and the profession don't really match up that well yeah so we're introduced to Tia Carrera who is an arts dealer but we find out later on that she's actually got some ties to the lead terrorist but we'll get into that later mm. because he's not introduced at this point no that's her role in the film and it comes into play in a much larger way later on before being forgotten almost completely we also get aspects of a techno spy thriller at this point when Harry is tasked to transfer some files from a computer in these kind of films they always try and be cutting edge yeah it's and... supposed to be like 10 years ahead of what's on the market yeah yeah, and then so. when you look at the computer screen, it blatantly reads Windows 3.1. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and they're talking about it as if it's like the best thing yeah. since sliced bread. And and it's great at the time, but when you look back on these films, they always look very twee. Yeah, <laughs> they, they really do. They're always dated by that aspect. There's one more thing to talk about with this sequence in that Arnold gets to dance the tango. And 
He's really good. He is really, really good. Actually, this was the aspect of the film that Arnold himself was the most nervous about. He did quite a lot of prep in preparing for this tango sequence, in this sequence and at the end of the film, because he wanted to get it right. Never mind all the stunts they had to do. It was the tango sequence that really, really scared him the most. Well, that's the thing. You look at Arnold and he's got the physique of a lumberjack. You don't think he's going to be able to bend in the yeah. ways that's demanded of a tango. And... People like to call Arnie a bad actor because, yeah, okay, he does have a limited range, but I like that he pushes himself in these ways. He's always trying to find something to uh, really work on. It could be a little thing like this, like a dance sequence. And he fucking nails it. I mean, I'm no tango expert, but to my eyes... He's very uh, credible in... in, in Very credible, yeah. ...being the dancer, yeah. Uh, And that's the thing with, with Arnold... In terms of any documentary you'll ever watch about people who've worked with him, they'll always talk about him in a positive light because he likes to get stuck in with things. He's he's very professional, and hard likes worker, to, and yeah, like they said, he's got limitations as an actor, but he'll he'll try and push himself as much as he can. Yeah, and he's got something that even good actors are missing, which is charisma. He has it in abundance, whereas you have some good actors that are just lacking it completely. Yeah, yeah. and uh, this is something we'll talk about later when we uh, see this character's journey. Oh, yeah, this character's and very transpires. Yeah. troubling journey. Yeah, which, again, on a first-time viewing, really surprised me. I was thinking, he's going there? He's going in this yeah, direction? Yeah, uh, Why? The this, film is, changes, this is awful. The film changes completely <laughs> yeah. at the 50-minute mark. But, again, we'll get, to that. we'll get to that later on. So, after this big action sequence, and where we get to see Arnie's super spy at work, we get to see him blow shit up and... Knock two dogs' heads together. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we get to see him in life and or death situations. It's Arnie doing what he does best, and it's absolutely amazing. But shortly after this, we get to see his home life, which is, this is a super spy who goes home to a wife and kids. He just lives the average American family life. His wife thinks he works for a computer company, I think yeah, it is. Yeah, he's a computer salesman. Yeah, computer salesman. So this spy world is just completely cut off from that. And I, I like that element. I yeah. like that it's playing on this idea that James Bond goes home to a wife and kids. He goes home to that little average family unit. I, I liked how they introduced Jamie Lee Curtis's character, who's Helen, his wife. They actually introduce her in a very unglamorous way. She's kind of asleep in bed and you can audibly hear her snoring and snorting yeah. and things. So, yeah, I like how they introduced that contrast, especially to uh, Tia Carrera's character in the opening sequence. Yeah, it's all well put together mm. and makeup and Very glamorous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Living a glamorous lifestyle, mm. even if it might be a dangerous lifestyle. And then he goes home to this normal wife, which is perfectly fine. It's the average family household. But yeah, and then the film plays on this for a short while. And we also have Eliza Dushku yes, uh, playing role. his daughter, Dana, who is a typical American teenager of this era. Oh, yeah. That's all I can really say about this character. She doesn't really have anything else about her. No, there's no real defining features other than the fact that she's a troubled teenager who likes grunge. Which we've seen in many, many 90s films. Yeah, it's a 90s staple. <laughs> it's a very 90s staple. And, yeah, you'll see it in more films than this one. But there's not much more to her than that. But fortunately, she isn't in the film that much. And we're introduced to his home life. And it seems clear that this is a troubled relationship it's gone very stale and there's some really nice bits where jamie lee curtis will talk about having slept with someone and he won't register it at all like she she does it as a joke and it just completely flies him by 
Yeah, yeah, he's just... As it, he's in another world completely. His, his thoughts are too busy thinking about the mission over and over and over again, whereas she's just trying to get his attention any way that she can. She feels like her life's slipping away from her, and it's something that happens to everybody. Everybody gets stuck in that rut. So it's a very realistic portrayal of the um, average household, and it gains a lot of sympathy from the audience. It did from me, anyway. It does at this point. Yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> at this point, at yeah. this point. And then we jump to Washington, D.C., to Amiga Sector, which is the agency that Harry and all the other gang belong to. And we get introduced to Charlton Heston as White Nick Fury. <laughs> That's all I can describe yeah. him as. He's, he's the, the M figure. They set him up like Blofeld at the start, which is I find quite amusing when they have him turned around in the chair. I was almost expecting a cat. I remember when I first watched this film and I expected that character to come into play later as being... A bad guy because of the way that he was introduced yeah the scar on his face the eye patch and that spin in the chair the imagery is saying this man is a bad man but it's also charlton heston so he can't be that bad you know well, when he's not shooting I'm, kids yeah i'm gonna talk about this irony later on yeah. <laughs> so. then we get introduced to the main plot during this sequence about nuclear warheads being stolen from kazakhstan and Bada, bada, bada. They've been smuggled into America somehow and they're scared that there's a car going to pull up in front of the White House with a nuke in the back of it and it's going to yeah. kill everybody. So there's a real immediacy about the threat level here. But this is where I feel the film thematically starts having problems because having a simple story is fine, but having a story of this ilk... Well, I don't feel this plot, um, and we'll call this plot the A story is complex enough to sustain its running time and become credible. Well, that becomes... It does feel very cartoony. Yeah, that becomes apparent as the film goes on that there's just not enough there to keep it going. Yeah, there isn't enough substance in anybody's motivations surrounding this plot. And that becomes a problem when you're dealing with these kinds of characters. Yeah. And then after being introduced to the main plot, what's, you know, the MacGuffin of the story, mm. essentially, like, what's happened to these nukes, who've got them, what bad guys have managed to smuggle them into the country, we get into the main story mm. now. We're introduced to everything, everything set up, the story begins. And for the first 50 minutes, I would say it works rather well. There are some troubling elements to it, there are some issues, but it really works relatively well. So... Um, shall we get to the point where we're finally introduced to our bad guy? Yeah, uh, Tia Carreri's character conveniently has offices in DC, which is another stretching credibility yeah. thing. <laughs> uh, and there's a couple of nice Roger Moore quips, like, do you see anything you like? Oh, uh, yeah. There are a lot of Roger Moore-style quips in this film. Yeah, it does feel like, like I say, it's playing on the Roger Moore era of Bond more than any other era of Bond. And we're introduced to Art Mallet's character, Aziz, and his introduction is is rather odd, I think. It's it's not um, a big bad opening, and the uh, the film expects us to treat this character as the main villain right from the offset, even though he hasn't done anything bad yet. No, he just gets a close up, and he's looking at Harry Tasker, and he's from the Middle East, and he's from the Middle East, and the music is telling us this man is bad, and at the moment, all we know is he's a Middle Eastern worker. And I'd really love to hear what Art Malik thinks about this film now and, and also his reasons for going into doing the film because this character is really a stock villain. I, there's nothing I could tell you that's interesting about this character other than that he's the big bad terrorist man. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's very one-dimensional. I mean, 
the next scene where we get an idea of how bad he is because he's seen slapping Tia Carrera for bringing Arnie into an area that's in close proximity to the nukes. He's too, yeah. he's scared that every, his whole plot's going to be uncovered. Mm. But I think that says something about this film because it's thematically played on throughout the entire film that bad things happen to women. Yes. And yes. our main bad guy is introduced slapping Tia Carrera across the face twice. And later on, Jamie Lee Curtis goes through a similar thing, but not not quite physical, more emotional slapping by her husband. So yeah. I, I have real issues with the way that the film treats women and how these characters are defined by their treatment of women. But again, this is something that comes into play later as the B-plot takes the uh, A stage. Yeah. Without Malik, I would say he's a typical 24-style terrorist. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, He's straight from the pages of the Daily Mail. And Fox News. Of course he is. Yeah, he, yeah. I was going to say the, the, the whole idea of Crimson Jihad uh, just screams Fox News for me. It, it does. It's You can almost hear Bill O'Reilly scream that out, <laughs> that blood-curdling scream that he does, eyes bulging. Yeah, yeah. And actually, there's some good juxtaposition between uh, Harry's life at this point and what his wife thinks of him. There's some nice little back and forth yeah. to compare what it is and what she thinks. Um, I like that she fantasizes about the life that he secretly leads. That's her. That, that's one of the aspects of the B plot that actually works. Yeah, it really does. And lo and behold, it's actually his birthday. Oh, of course, yeah. It, it's it's not that bad, but I could almost call this cliche the movie. Yeah, it, it does have a fair few cliches going on that it plays on. Uh, quite a few, actually. Yeah, I was thinking when I was watching the film, uh, it doesn't have that cartoony aspect, but it did in parts remind me of Last Action Hero from the year before, uh, that other Arnold Schwarzenegger film about action films. I'd say it's more well put together than Last Action yeah. Hero. yeah. But I would also say that this one's a little bit more odious. Last Action Hero is innocent in its faults. Its its flaws have come from an, an innocent place. It's, yeah. If it does feel like four films in one, Last Action Hero. And although this has the same problem, that it feels like a couple of films just smashed together, there is an element that really doesn't sit right with me in this one. It feels a lot more odious and sinister. Yeah, but I think it does the parody a lot better yes, than oh, True Lies. Y- yes, it, it does. Yeah. It definitely does. So... It's Harry's birthday, and uh, we get this uh, cliche that we know as an audience he's going to be late for his own party. Of course he is. It's, it's just inevitable. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, his family are doing the cake and putting the candles on. You know he's never going to make it. It's, like, all, it's all set up for failure. I promise you, Helen, I will be there. And, and, he, uh, yeah. and Tom Arnold is there. He's just picking up something from the office. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then oh, you know five what hours he, later. You know what he's like. You know what he's like. Because <laughs> obviously he gets too wrapped up in the mission. Because... Uh, on his way home, he's actually followed by Art Malik's terrorist, whose name I have completely forgot. It might as well just it be just a stock terrorist character. And I mean, yeah. it is a stock terrorist character. And this is a thing. Tom Arnold refers to the guys following them in the car as terrorists before they've even seen them. Yeah, it, 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 uh, all he knows is that they followed them from the place that mm-hmm. they've come from. Uh, but because it, they're Arabs, yeah, they must be terrorists. Exactly, because they're dark of skin, they're terrorists. Yeah. They don't need to know anything else about them. It's it, the, the way that terrorists are treated by this. The way that anybody with a tan, other than Grant Hesloff, that just seems to be there to tick a box, mm. they are treated in the way that Nazis are treated in Indiana Jones. It's almost as if it has that same approach to people of yeah. a different color. That oh, you see, they're a different color, then they must be a terrorist. And uh, when Art Malik is following Arnold into this hotel, the music really over-eggs him in terms of it, the music saying, 
this is the big bad villain. Yeah. When we still haven't seen him do anything that bad. Yeah, it's it's a real waste of Art Malik, in my opinion, because he's a oh, great, I love he's Art a Malik. great he's actor. Great. <laughs> he's a great actor, and he would make an absolutely excellent villain if given just even another layer to the character, mm. some kind of dynamic element to him. I do think there are some interesting ways in which James Cameron approaches terrorism as a subject, but yeah, I, I think it's a real missed opportunity to make something of Art Malik's terrorist leader in this film. And we follow, we lead into the famous toilet sequence, which was made a lot of in the time. Yeah, I, I've always loved this fight sequence, and it actually bears more than a passing resemblance to the opening of Casino Royale, which I think is more of a coincidence, but it, it made yeah. me instantly think of that film. It's more of a fantasy take. Yeah, Casino Royale is a, is a realistic version of this fight. Yeah. Casino Royale is very gritty, black and white, in a very small space. Yeah. Whereas the toilets in True Lies have a, a certain sheen about them, very crystal clear quality, and they're massive. It's a massive toilet. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of space for them to burst through walls and yeah. walk through each other, break necks and break oh, everything. Yeah. It's a And also in Casino Royale, we don't break into Comedy Man on Lou situation. No, no. It... Which they do do in GoldenEye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, so there is always that man on the toilet just sat there like, what's going on? And uh, yeah. What did you eat, boy? Yeah, much is made of this comedy man on Lou as well. Yeah. They do get mileage out of this character. It should have been Tom Arnold, again, playing his role from Austin Powers, sat on the toilet. Yeah. Give that a courtesy flush. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. The, uh, there's some really nice use of strobes in this scene as well. I did like the use of... I'd, actually, I do like the use of lighting in this film, full stop. Yeah. I do feel it's actually been very well shot. I know the guy wasn't very well known who shot this film. Mm, it, I think oh. he brought him almost from like obscurity. Yeah, the film's really well shot by Russell Carpenter, who was an, an unknown at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, he'd done a couple of films. I was just, I'm just looking through his filmography now. He actually, he's done a film called Cameron's Closet, which <laughs> <laughs> just prior to this, he'd done Lawnmower Man, which I think is probably another film we'll do on one of these Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd be a podcasts. very interesting film to look into. Yeah, and uh, Hard Target. And he's gone on to work with Cameron several other times. He's done... Um, T2 3D and most famously Titanic and he's just come off doing Ant-Man. It does have that steely coldness that you usually see in a Cameron film. It also feels like it's got its own visual identity completely divorced from that as well. Yeah. It does look like a Cameron film but it also it doesn't look like Terminator 2. And in describing this action sequence we've been talking about Bond a lot but in some of the action sequences, it does owe a lot more to other films than it actually does Bond. Uh, yeah. I feel this, this action sequence in the toilet feels more reminiscent of something like Die Hard for me. Yeah, it does. I mean, you, I can almost see John McClane yeah. in the Arnold Schwarzenegger role. Absolutely. Another interesting note that I picked up on is the, the guy that he's fighting. It almost looks like he's fighting Middle Eastern Arnold. Yeah, it, it looks like mid, a Middle Eastern double, which it, it does literally look like the casting call went out for an Arnold Schwarzenegger type yeah. who is Middle Eastern because they both seem evenly matched, but obviously Arnie uh, does them in. So this sequence, it goes on to lead to a rather spectacular chase where Art Malik's uh, trying to get away on a motorbike yeah. and Arnold Schwarzenegger is chasing after him on a horse yeah. and judging by the size of Arnold Schwarzenegger he should break the horse's mm. back he should just jump <laughs> on and just fall straight through the horse not before the toilets are reduced to Swiss cheese of course yeah, yeah of course yeah. Arnold is riding this horse which is funny in itself 
But I'm just thinking, how is this horse catching up with this motorcycle? I have no idea. They actually <laughs> it's like super horse. They create an incredible amount of obstacles just for the bike to get it in the way of, so it can't get up to full <laughs> it speed. Is. So it's it is absolutely ludicrous, but it really plays well, I think, especially when it goes into the mall section. I do love the line where he goes, "The horse is getting tired." Yeah, I, I do. I you know I like Arnold Schwarzenegger throughout this entire sequence because he's played completely against type for like a Bond character who would be really focused on mm. this is the guy I need to catch and that's all he can think about. But instead, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's going through this entire sequence just apologizing to everybody that he gets in the way of. So it's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, excuse me, excuse me, sorry, <laughs> sorry, please. Just throughout the entire sequence. And it's another one of those quirks that makes me endeared towards that character character because I, I really like him and later on that jars with what he's tasked with doing as a character because he's so likable at this point and the the hotel that they use in the sequence is the westin bonaventure hotel which is actually in la but it's doubling for the marriott in washington dc and this hotel has been featured in many 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 films when i was even watching i was like this is the hotel from in, in the line of fire Oh, of course. Yes, yeah, it they, is. They use, and they use the same elevators and the same atrium. Uh, it is. It's, it's the elevator that John Malkovich falls from. It is. It's from the end of the film. Yeah. And in this film, they use the elevators in a more comical way, where yeah. they have the motorcycle in one and the horse, and the in, the horse in another. <laughs> with its tail hitting the woman in the face. Yeah. <laughs> I do think this entire sequence does strike a good tone uh, between comedy and seriousness. It does it rather well for me. It makes... Arnold's character seem endearing because he is apologising for... He's bumbling all the way the, through it. Yeah. And the cinematography, I do love the way that the camera moves through the hotel. I was almost expecting a, a Wilhelm scream from somebody. Oh, that's the one thing it's lacking. Like, is Indiana a James real Ford. Wilhelm scream. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they do do a similar thing in Indiana Jones and the King of the Crystal School, oh. that film. So the whole sequence climaxes when... Art Malik's terrorist escapes by jumping from the top of one building into a pool in another. And Arnold Schwarzenegger's going to follow him with his horse. It's so ridiculous. (laughs) This part of the film, I was just like, what the hell is going on? Because (laughs) I don't feel they even execute the the motorcycle jump that well because you can almost see the digital effect where it's trying to extend his fall that little bit more just to get him to reach that pool. Yeah, it needed to be done more practically in the camera yeah. in a more realistic mm. way because he does seem to be just floating towards that pool he's just flying it needed to be done in the same vein as the terminator 2 bicycle jump yeah it's almost like woody jumping the cliff in woody's roundup in toy story 2 <laughs> it feels like that <laughs> yeah but... you can see the strings yeah. holding him up the, yeah. hand, the, the puppetry i want to play on this this idea that harry himself isn't the world's smartest spy. He does do some incredibly stupid things in the film. Yeah. Uh, one of which is what he tries to do after this is actually use the horse to do yeah, the same thing. To follow him with the horse. It's, and the horse has better ideas. And even has the audacity afterwards to blame the horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, during this sequence, I do have a little piece of trivia for you, but Arnold Schwarzenegger almost died doing this uh, because when the horse was going to do the fake jump, it actually started... Bucking wildly on top of the building they were on. 
And all that they put up was like a four foot barrier to stop anything from going over the side of the building. And it almost booked Arnold straight down the other side where there was a 60 foot drop. Mm. Luckily, he managed to jump to safety, but he didn't want to do the stunt and a stuntman had to finish it off. But it just goes to show that, you know, the kind of things that these people put themselves in a line of, the risks that they take just for our entertainment. Yeah. It's such an underappreciated art, the stunt work, yeah. in my opinion. It's that it never gets an Oscar. It's completely unforgivable. It's, for it's me. a massive oversight. Although I still don't understand why they didn't build a mock-up of this hotel roof and, yeah. and do it there. It just it just seems to me much much safer. Much safer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More expensive, man. And it's at this point, following the pull sequence, that we find out who Art Malik's character is. But unfortunately, we don't get to see Art Malik again for another fifty minutes. No, because the film takes a sudden left turn yeah. at this point. And it becomes a little bit of a family drama and a troubling one at that. Mm. So when you think that the film's going to um, follow this terrorist plot and Arnie trying to catch the bad guys, the film becomes a character drama in which Arnie discovers that his wife might be having an affair. This segment of the film, which again I'll talk as a segment, is the most troubling of the entire film for me. Very, it's the, very it's, troubling. It's the one I have the most issue with, and from a director like James Cameron, who's normally deals with the feminine side of his films really well, he treats women like characters on yeah. equal levels that he treats men. They are as much treated as complex beings. And Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Helen Tasker, is really mishandled, and the treatment of her is borderline misogynistic, in my opinion. And I don't think he was going through any divorces at the time either. I'm pretty sure he was still with Linda Hamilton at this point. Yeah. So I don't really see his reasoning for handling the characters in this way. Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, Harry Tasker, finds out that his wife might be having an affair. So instead of following this terrorist plot, he drops it completely and decides that he's going to focus all of that manpower and gadgetry that he has to spy on his wife. Yeah, he pretty much abuses his position as a spy in order to wrangle out his suspicions. And not only is it troubling in terms of the misogynism, but also it just completely abandons that terrorist plot, which was originally set up as being a rather immediate threat. Yeah, and it is the A plot, but it just gets completely abandoned at this point. We don't even touch on it. It's just yeah. not mentioned. And it's almost as if the A plot encroaches back on the B plot at some point. Yeah. It just sort of, and here we are, we're coming back into the A plot. Absolutely, uh, yeah. It's been an interesting diversion, but here we back are again, you know. <laughs> That's how it feels in its structure. And it's also really surprising as well how much Arnold automatically assumes because she's meeting another man that she is having an affair. Yeah. It's just a done deal from there on. He doesn't really... He doesn't investigate it that much further. No, and he never approaches her as a human being would. He just automatically becomes that spy character who's just, like you say, really um, abuses his power. He's, to quite, he's quite weaselly about it as well. He doesn't approach her like a man about it. He's no, just like, he's, he's sinister yeah, about it. And he, sort of, he wheedles around the sidelines. He doesn't confront her about it at all. No, listen, when Tom Arnold is your voice of reason, which he is during this period of the film, yeah. there is something incredibly troubling about yeah. that. This is probably one of Tom Arnold's best moments in the whole film when he actually yeah. tells Arnold what he needs to hear regarding the fact that his double life will eventually catch up with him. Instead of listening to what Tom Arnold has to say, Harry Tasker instead blackmails him, mm. saying, oh, you remember that time you got a blowjob when you blew yeah. a six-week case? And <laughs> he's like, okay, I'm on board. 
there's actually a very interesting piece of trivia at this point. The uh, the line involving the ice cube tray is actually a, from a real life story of Tom Arnold's. Oh, uh, isn't that his ex-wife? Wh- when he was t- getting divorced from Roseanne Barr, she did actually take the ice cube tray uh, <laughs> with her. Uh, so this whole line is a real jibe at her. Yeah, it really is. What woman takes the ice cube tray? Just what, what, what sick, twisted woman would take an ice cube tray? <laughs> really? It's during this part we're also introduced to Bill Paxton as Simon, who is um, a weaselly used car salesman that's conning women into thinking that he's a spy. And he's so obviously a creep because he has a moustache. Again, going into cliche the movie. Exactly. Have you not seen these films before? He he has a moustache and floppy hair. What's going on? (laughs) But he's conning women into thinking he's a spy so he can shag them. Which is... um, to be honest... Th- this, this is a whole other film. Yeah, it's a completely different film. It's completely divorced from what we've seen before. But I would say that Bill Paxson is involved in the weakest part of the film, but actually but he, comes out the best. He plays it very, very well. Because he plays these weaselly, snidey characters absolutely perfectly. And he's a delight every time he's on the screen, even though he's playing such an odious little bastard. There is one line out of this whole sequence that I really did like regarding uh, phone tapping. Because mm-hmm. Tom Arnold questions Harry about tapping the phone. And then Harry goes, but we do it 20 times a day. He goes on about <laughs> it being a felony, but it's like, we do it 20 times a day. So it's fine for us. It's almost prophetic, though, considering what the NSA do these days. Yeah. Uh, it's quite on the nose for now. But at the time, I imagine it was um, a little bit hush-hush. There's also a really nice scene that I really like in this part which is one of the few positive moments that it actually has, is once Arnold Schwarzenegger's character discovers that this used car salesman, Simon, is trying to have sex with his wife, he tracks him down and <laughs> pretends that he's buying a car from him. Uh, and so there's this sequence where he's test driving the car for him and there's this incredible, like, cutaway dream sequence. When he hits him. When he hits him oh. in the face, killing him instantly. And then it cuts <laughs> back to him and he's still laughing. It's it's so incredible. And I remember being shocked at the time. And I'm still shocked every time I see it now. But it's... And I laughed so hard afterwards. The funny thing is, the way he describes Jamie Lee Curtis as a sexual object, later on is exactly how the film portrays her. <laughs> It is, <laughs> it's yeah. really strange. It's this double standards thing again. It's taking the piss out of this Simon character, and yet its own mentality is very similar. Yeah, Harry Tasker actually approaches his wife in a very similar way later on in the film. He wants her to act as a hooker at one point, make her think that she's acting as a hooker for some international spy or something, yeah. you know, to plant some bug on him. And it's really sinister and creepy. I would say that. This whole segment is actually a unfortunate casualty to the whole idea of the film being a Bond parody. Yeah, the whole middle of the film doesn't have any of those traits. It, no. It, it, as I said, it becomes a different film entirely, and it starts becoming a, a parody. It's more of a... I don't even know what to describe. It's not a romantic comedy either, because he's such a dick in it. Yeah, <laughs> and I feel like Cameron's unsure of the film that he's making at this time. Because at one point, he's asking me to like Arnie's character. And for the first 50 minutes, he's done nothing but endear me towards him mm. in any way that he can. If he's playing on the idea that this is the type of home life that a Bond lifestyle leads to, you know, this kind of paranoid individual with an arsenal of spy gadgetry at his disposal, 
he should have seeded that in earlier in the film because there's nothing previously that makes me think Harry Tasker is a character capable of being this much of a dick. No, and it doesn't see Jamie Lee Curtis's character to have that level of infidelity. It, it's such a weird relationship that he has mm. with his wife that he doesn't seem to trust her at all or even confront her about it. And um, the film treats it as if she's doing the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Even though she's the one that's wanting to do it just because she wants a bit of excitement. Yeah, she's just after something to just make her heartbeat rise, just to even a flutter. Yeah, and because of it, she gets put through loads of shit. Yeah, how dare you dream of this? This would be more suited to the film, this whole element to it, if there had been more of a difference between Harry Tasker's life at work and Harry Tasker's life at home. But because he's portrayed as being the bumbling, apologetic, almost a fool at times during his missions and not somebody that's cold and calculated and capable of being who he becomes later on when he turns that spy mentality on his wife Mm. it just feels so out of place yeah i feel that the character of helen should have really been dragged into this spy world in a completely different way the 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 way that they deal with her integration into the a plot Mm. is totally unnecessary and uncomfortable to watch and it's just overlong. I feel you could have made a, a film that was about an hour and 40 if you'd have been way more efficient in how this part of the film was played out. I agree with you. I think, number one, this whole segment needs to be integrated into the film in a way that's a lot more natural because so far the film moves in blocks. The structure of it is very much just segmented. And I absolutely agree with you as well that the character of Helen Tasker should have been brought into the film yeah, in a way that was far less creepy and sinister. Because I like the idea. I really like the idea and I appreciated that she's a woman that dreams of the life that her husband is secretly leading. And I like the idea of her being able to get a glimpse into that life and perhaps even stepping up to the plate and proving herself as being a natural as well. Somebody that's been overlooked and yet proves herself in this role. I mean, we've seen something very similar this year with Spy, which it plays for comedy, the Melissa McCarthy star, which is actually really effective in this way. But I think they should have brought that character in, the character of Helen Tasker, in this kind of way that felt more involved in the story at hand. But going into being uncomfortable, which is a a very good word to describe this whole section, I, I felt incredibly uncomfortable going into this next section because... This is the part where Helen and Simon are are captured by Harry and company. And she's locked in this interrogation room. Yeah. Which is one of two very awful sequences involving Arnold and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. And his wife. It's rather upsetting, actually, (laughs) even just thinking about it. It's very upsetting that she's forced to answer questions like, who have you slept with? Have you had sex? Do you love your husband? And other questions much more personal than that. Yeah. Not just in front of Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, but also in front of Tom Arnold as well. Who's adding some very unhelpful interjections as well. Yeah, yeah. And it is. It's it's quite an upsetting scene, and it actually plays for laughs quite often. During the entire scene, it's actually played for laughs, and Cameron doesn't put us in her shoes enough. It's almost as if they're not aware of this problem. No, shooting the sequence. It feels so mishandled for Cameron, who is normally completely in tune with the female side of his films 
I think a lot of critics at the time almost took this film as a, a very much a backward step for Cameron. I have to agree that it is a backward step in terms of uh, the way that he approaches women in film. And following this abuse, when Harry is finally convinced that she uh, is not being unfaithful to him, she gets sent on an assignment which leads into yet another uncomfortable scene. <laughs> it really does. And I'm not quite sure of the thinking behind the concept of this assignment because you could have done... There's so many different variations you can play on this assignment mm. and they go for the dodgiest one. Yes. They go for the most inappropriate one. That's what I was about to say. It is absolutely the most inappropriate way to go about this. Um, so in this sequence, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Helen, is forced to strip tease by her husband and she's forced to take the guise of a hooker and sexually undress for a stranger who is also her husband but she doesn't know that and for me this is the lowest point of the film yeah but the reason i think it's the lowest point in that it doesn't illustrate this idea from her point of view and it tells the audience that this is the character going from an ugly duckling to a swan yeah it is it's her transformation uh, and it's meant to be a positive transformation yeah and the camera ogles her exactly like her husband does and i must say that jamie lee curtis her physique is just amazing she looks really? she <laughs> really looks is incredible in this film but even that can't save this sexy striptease that she's doing can't save it from being just utterly creepy and i felt so awkward watching it because yeah she is in very good shape but i just felt really dirty watching it because yeah it's just because of the context of the sequence and yet the camera just wants us to ogle her just like her husband is and it, yeah. it's again just completely mishandled i still can't quite believe that she can't see uh harry in the in the light no a- <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's very much blacked out yeah. but in that situation you even in the darkness you can tell it's him yeah there's a very <laughs> suspicious shadow on and over also, his head that you have no idea where it's come from and, and also playing back a voice on a tape is not really going to replicate someone speaking in the room no i like that at one point he has to rewind it and play unless it again it's a, yeah unless it's a really fancy tape player yeah i i wish in these films when people have tape players and they have to re- rewind them and play them <laughs> they again get it they, in the wrong spot yeah, they, they get it in the wrong spot <laughs> they never do that it's always uh, just perfect and uh, i actually found myself inwardly cheering when she clocks him one with the phone yeah i mean i think the film wants us to to cheer a little bit when she clocks him with the phone but not not as much as the rest of the film leads us to believe it's played for like a comedy gag when really what this character has done is unbelievably awful yeah and following this the a plot uh, it's almost like uh blazing saddles where (laughs) where (laughs) the a plot (laughs) It's like the A film traipses back onto the B film. Yeah, it's it's almost like the A film has burst back onto the set of the B film, yeah. just through the walls and, and then drags them back into the main film again, the mm. characters. Let's get past this really troubling sequence because yeah. uh, it's not one that I want to dwell on for too long because then we'll get back into the action now. <laughs> and, so. th- and then we're sent to Rent-A-Cuba. Yes, we are. So Helen and Harry are kidnapped by terrorists and taken to Rent-A-Cuba. Which later is revealed to be Key West, but it really does feel like a generic Central American country. Yes. <laughs> so this is where we are introduced back to Art Malik, who is this terrorist leader, and his group of all sorts of terrorists. And um, we get an idea that their plot is just another revenge against America, stereotypical stock 
Hollywood revenge plot. Yeah, there's, there's, there's nothing, nothing more to yeah, it. Yeah, there's nothing interesting about it. And th- there's no personal conflict for that character either. It's just a generic, you're bombing our country, therefore yeah. we'll bomb yours. There's, there's nothing... Uh, you kill our wife and kids with your bombs. We kill your wife and kids with our bombs. It's And that's it. There's no duality to the character either. There's nothing more going on other than just very simple revenge. I understand that this film is dealing with cartoon characters in that way but it it leaves me wanting more we've seen bond films with these kind of cartoon character villains before but we've also seen bond films with villains that are far more dynamic as well both prior to this film and post the ultimate irony as well is that art malik has played other characters possibly in this vein that have had less screen time but have been ultimately more complex uh, one springs to mind and connections with bond again art malik plays a resistance leader in afghanistan in the living daylights and his character is far more complex and you can really sympathize with his views in that film and yet in this film he's obviously playing a villain where we really need to find out why he's doing this and we don't really get a proper answer no no it's just again that generic stock hollywood excuse of you know you bummers uh, bummers <laughs> <laughs> you bummers will bum you <laughs> i wish that was in sarah's plot i wish he was going about trying to bum as many uh, politicians as he could possible <laughs> that would be a far more entertaining film yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I've lost it completely. Oh. Um, uh, perhaps it's better to move on to this yeah. uh, to this low battery idea, which is actually, in terms of taking the piss out of terrorist characters and fanatics, is quite a good sequence. There's not enough of that kind no, of thing. No, there needs to be more of it because I really like it. I, I like that the film makes fun of terrorists yeah. as being morons. But I still don't think they'd quite do it in the right way. Just for how they've set up this group yeah. and how they portray people from the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it is just a a mass of brown people. And I know that Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't American, but he embodies the American hero. It's just this American hero just mowing through as many Middle Eastern people as he can. And his wife, often played for comedy. And I get that terrorists should be pointed at and made fun of because they are in all their forms, idiots. Because you are resorting to killing someone to make a point. And that is the most idiotic thing that a person can do. But because of the weird racial issues that are going on with the film, it doesn't come across as well as it should. Yeah, it never really steps up to the plate for those kinds of issues. So during this sequence, this third act brawl, Mm. we get a scene in which Harry and his wife Helen are being prepared for torture. Mm. and he is injected with a truth serum. And <laughs> it's almost a reversal of the interrogation scene with Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, yeah. character, where Helen finally gets to ask him the questions, and he has to answer truthfully. But the difference is, she's not the one subjecting him to this. No. So it doesn't work in that way. It's played off as being, oh, this is Helen getting one over back on her husband. But it doesn't work that way, because she's not the one doing this to him. It's being done to him by terrorists. She's never truly in power at any point in the film. It's always her husband. Perhaps during a sequence later on where she gets a one-on-one fight scene with Tia Carrera's art dealer. 
But even so, she's always relegated to the smaller parts of the action. And even sooner, when she uh, tries to fire the gun, and we get this whole sequence of the gun falling down the stairs, I feel that this is a very backward step yeah. in terms of how it treats Helen's character. And We've got to such a point where we think she's made a transformation, and then she bungles it. Yeah. I mean, for a film that deals with these fantasy characters in a fantastical way, I do feel like there is space to give her more of a win. She's supposed to be our way into this sequence. The civilian lost in the action. She's supposed to be the audience's eyes into this scene. But the rest of the film has been so concerned with Arnie that, to be honest, all it does is it uses her as an excuse to point and laugh at something. Yeah. And I think also because Jamie Lee Curtis plays the part so well, she is very endearing and you do want her to succeed, but the film doesn't give her that many opportunities to do that. Exactly, yeah. Even during the following sequence, which is the sequence in the bridge, I do feel it's one of those things where she's having to be saved yet again. It's straight after having a win over Tia Carrera in the car, where she um, hits her over the head with a bottle. And again, that win is completely undercut by the fact that she just has to be saved. Even that whole sequence is furthermore undercut by the fact that she wails like a banshee. Yeah, uh, which it's still is a very much damsel in distress situation yeah. going on here. Interesting enough, this uh, next section involving the the bridges that connect Key West, the same stretch was actually used within License to Kill. I do think it's a um, really good action sequence, actually. I, um, I've always liked this segment of the film. I think, again, it's got issues, deeper issues that are ingrained in the film. But as an action sequence taken, divorced from those issues, it's actually really well put together. Yeah. I think its effectiveness was slightly undermined by its tone. It did have a very gung-ho, kick-ass mentality about yeah. it that I think slightly betrayed it. Yeah, the whole, like, Rider of the Valkyries thing with the um, yeah the Harrier jets coming over, firing missiles at the bridge. It does mm. have this Apocalypse Now feel mm. where you can almost say, bum ba dum bum 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 ba dum bum bum So, yeah, it does have that American gung-ho feel. I, I do... Absolutely agree. Yeah, Helen has to be saved and the character of Juno gets killed or whatever. We never really see her again. We don't really know what happens to that character no, at all. We don't really find out. There's a part of the bridge that's, um, that's blown, been blown up. up. Yeah. yeah, and it's completely missing. And after Harry saves his wife, that car with Tia Carrera's character still inside, just careens off the bridge and lands in the water. Yeah. And it looks like a very survivable... Unless she was in a really awkward position, uh, it doesn't look like she would have drowned or anything because she would have been able to get out through the roof. It was a stunt that was begging for an explosion, just uh, for that finality to it. And it's at this point after this sequence that the B-plot gets resolved. Harry and Helen, they kiss over the glow of the nuclear mm. explosion from Rentakiba. <laughs> so, yeah, that B-plot resolves, and it's kind of strange that it resolves at this point because it's taken such a huge front seat throughout the middle of the film that it's yeah. strange that it gets resolved before the end of the main action and there's another element of the family that's brought into it immediately oh, after God. as well and it's it's, <laughs> it's i understand that cameron wants to keep the story personal to harry tasker from yeah. this point onwards was this sequence tacked on because it it does, I, it just feels like it is because 
it even feels like Tom Arnold's characters having to have ex- give excuses for the failures in the plot. It's like Tom Arnold's characters going, your daughter's been kidnapped, but I don't know how it happened. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like he's a scriptwriter. He's there to yeah. be the um, the scriptwriter's voice going, hey, I know this is as ludicrous as you think it is, but it's okay because I'm saying it's okay. Um, like, and we're keeping it in the family. Exactly. It's because one of the characters recognises that it's a ridiculous thing, it somehow gives it a pass. Yeah. But really, there's no logical it's, reason. It's very, very flimsy. It very much so is. Because, for example, how was Art Malik's terrorist leader? One, how did he find his daughter? Two, when did he have people capture his daughter? And three, why does he need his daughter, considering Art Malik thinks the guy's dead? So yeah. there is no logical reason. When, if he really wanted a hostage, he could have just grabbed somebody on the street outside the building that he was setting up mm-hmm. at. If he was really desperate for a hostage, that's what he'd do. There's no logical reason for him to be acting this way, and this guy's supposed to be a terrorist leader. And also to kidnap her all the way from Washington, D.C. and bring her down to Miami. Yeah. So even geographically, it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make sense at all. And I understand that there's this element of the film that's pointing and laughing at terrorists, saying, aren't these guys fucking idiots? But up until that point... Art Malik's terrorist leader has been shown as being a smart guy. He's the guy that's a cut above the rest of this rabble. Yeah. And the guy that brings them all together. They may be all idiots, but he's the one that has brought them all together. But there's nothing in the rest of the film that makes us believe that he should act this stupid. And Harry jumps into a Harrier jump jet to go and rescue her and uh, leaves Helen behind. She's happy to be left behind because he's going to do man stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's, again, it's it's just... And there's l- even that little wink, I'm going to do man stuff in my uh, Harry yeah. jump jet. Yeah, it's uh, your bit is over now. If you could go back home and continue being a wife, that would be... Put the tea on, love. Excellent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's, she doesn't seem half concerned that her daughter's been kidnapped by the very terrorist that... No. <laughs> That had, um, <laughs> that's why I feel like the whole thing's been tacked on it, later it, on it does feel it, it feels like the film was supposed to end at one point and a test audience went uh, we, we feel like it could be at least 20 minutes longer we need a bigger climax yeah. <laughs> we need a bigger climax than that nuclear explosion Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but that said again the sequence that follows, although it does feel tacked on, it was always a staple of my childhood it is, scene it's a with, great sequence, I just it, wish it had been set up better I do agree with you, but it's executed so well that mm. even this time watching it again, being aware of all the film's faults, I was still completely on board throughout the entirety of the action scene, and Arnold Schwarzenegger showing his face as his Harrier jet lifts up above Art Malik's view and he's giving him the stare out of the window it's golden. And going back to Art Malik being the most intelligent leader of this terrorist group, he yet again does another stupid thing in getting this news crew to come up and film his demands. And not vetting them at all, they just assume they're a regular news crew. I do wish that the film had set him up as being this stupid earlier on in the film, because I do like the idea of portraying terrorists as idiots, as being egotistical idiots. But he's playing completely straight. Well, I think it's just that there's not enough of him in the film prior to this. He disappears from the film for a full 50 minutes. Yeah. And that's only after we find out who he is. So his impact is very much dwindled. Completely, in fact. But also we get introduced to Grant Hesloff in this scene again, who is, uh, again, I think just ticking a box. And another character that has been absent for quite a large section of the film. I do think he is there just to show that... Hey, look, not all people of colour 
are terrorists. Yeah. That's that's the only function that he seems to have in this film, is just to be there, to be the exception to the rule. Yeah, he, he's the token non-white guy. The token non-white guy, who's also good. When everybody else that dares to have so much as a tan is a terrorist. Eliza Dushku's character, who again is absent for quite a large section of the film and is now built up to being one of these main characters, even though prior to that she hasn't been. She steals the key to the bomb. Yep. And uh, they end up on the crane at the top of this uh, unfinished building. Harry flies in with his Harry jump jet. And saves the day. And mayhem ensues. Yeah. <laughs> I did like that Eliza Dusku did have that strong moment where she dared to take the key from the terrorists and run away. Mm. And I did get the feeling that she would have probably fallen to her death with the key in her hand had it yeah. not been for father saving the day. Yeah. I do like that she's strong in that way. I wish her mother had been as well. As I, a I just, and I, I wish their relationship as a family had just been better constructed. Yeah, there are elements of it there in those early scenes in that first 50 minutes, mm. but because the film is so fractured and because it leaves so much behind time and time again, people just go missing. And Eliza Dushka is another unfortunate casualty of that. Going back to cliche the movie, Cameron himself, he's done this a couple of times, most notably in The Terminator. Some filmmakers seem to have the idea that people wearing headphones can't hear anything. At all. So we, we had it with the character of Ginger in Terminator where she couldn't hear anything was going on. She was listening to her cool hip tunes on her Walkman. Of course. And again, we have this cleaner in this other office building who's listening to his Walkman and cannot hear any of the Harrier jump jet going around and crashing into the building. It's quite a spectacle as well to see this Harrier jet just smash into the side of a building and take the entire wall out with it. It's very well done. It's, it's a, it is very well done. As far as cliches go, it's one that's executed rather well. There are a lot of cliches in the film, but for the most part, they are executed very well. I mean, Cameron is throwing everything and the kitchen sink at the screen, and because he's such a master of action cinema anyway, it still comes across as being well executed, but it's one that, for me, it doesn't hold up to repeat viewings because of that. I feel like it's just a matter of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. So, of course, our action hero saves the day, saves his daughter, and... Um, and can we just play that clip of the end, the literally the last Roger Moore-style quip? Of course. Here we go straight over to the clip. You're fired. I just love how this missile goes right through this building and into that helicopter. It's just unbelievable. It's perfect. <laughs> I think as an ending, it's absolutely perfect. As a denouncement, it's absolutely spot on. But I think, unfortunately, because the tone of the film has been all over the place, the film doesn't come off as much for parody, so it makes the sequence look actually more stupid than it should be mm -hmm. because it's semi-realistic, not realistic line, and it can't quite decide which one it wants to be. Yeah. So sequences like that, which are very good in and of themselves, kind of look a bit silly in context. Yeah, when you judge it on its own, it's a really well-executed denouncement for the antagonist. Yeah. But when viewed in the larger picture, because the film is so schizophrenic and what it wants to be, it's unfortunately undercut in that way. I'm going to say this now, that the scene from Die Hard 4 or Live Free and Die Hard, if you are listening in the States, totally rips off this scene. It really, yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. But you rip off Cameron, you are still ripping off the best. You are, yeah. We still have one more scene to go later on, a year later, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of time has passed. 
Helen's grown her hair just to indicate this fact. Yeah. Yeah, we end up going into sort of a, a Mr. and Mrs. Smith kind of vibe here. Yeah, and we see that Helen has actually joined Harry in his spy game. But there's been nothing previous that makes us think that she would be at home as a spy. No, she's got dreams and aspirations of doing something that's a little bit more exciting, but nothing indicates that this is the path that she's going to take. I wish the rest of the film would have built up to this moment a lot more consistently, so that when we got to this point where Helen was on an equal level with Harry in terms of his ability as a spy, it felt believable and earned, but because she spends most of the film completely out of her depth, We don't understand why she's there. And we end on another tango sequence as the credits roll, following a brief resurgence of Simon. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. Bill Paxton gets his comeuppance again in another little scene where he manages to piss himself. Yeah. I love seeing him on screen. I love seeing him piss himself. I might have a fetish. (laughs) I love (laughs) love how you Yeah, any sequence where Bill Paxton pisses himself, you're just in in there. I am in. What if I told you that there's a film where Bill Paxton just does that all the way through the film? You're on board, aren't you? I already have it on DVD. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's one last great post-credits line from Tom Arnold regarding, I don't want to be in the van anymore. Yeah. (laughs) As well. That's quite a nice little uh, end end line. It is, and it's a nice little payoff for Tom Arnold there as well. So, that is True Lies, and now that we've talked about the story and our opinions of it in great depth, I think it's time for us to actually look at the facts and figures to see if there's uh, anything we can gain from the stats to tell us why this film has been forgotten. Because as I said before, I hadn't seen this film all the way through properly before, but I was aware that it was a very big film at the time. I mean, it really was quite big at the time. If we look at the uh, box office figures, the film opened at number one to 26 million, its domestic gross overall was 146 million and its worldwide gross was 379. Both domestically and worldwide, it turned out to be the third best film of the year. Mm. That's just box office. So it was a massive hit. If I talk about the two films that were above it, you're talking Forrest Gump and The Lion King, which yeah. are still regarded as classics today. And the film was R rated as well, wasn't it? It was. It was so. the number one R rated film of the year. Yeah. So it's almost a wonder why it has been forgotten. And. Let me put it into perspective as well. If you take a look at the films that made less than True Lies that year, you have The Flintstones, Dumb and Dumber, Clear and Present Danger, Speed, The Mask, Pulp Fiction. These are all films that are remembered now. Even complete duds like The Flintstones still gets television time. True Lies comes in third for the year and it's just forgotten. So we've looked at the box office numbers, but um, what kind of reception did it get in terms of the critical and public reception? Well, in terms of Cameron's films up to that point and even afterwards now including titanic and avatar barring piranha 2 it is actually <laughs> his lowest rated film it's got 72 percent on rotten tomatoes and it's got an average rating of 6.6 so it's okay it's IMDb. still very very much fresh but it's fresh but with issues yeah that tomato is starting to get a little bit <laughs> squidgy around the edges starting to get a little bit funky and those are just reviews at the time and i think I think certain people were picking up on those problems, especially the issues regarding uh, how it treated the terrorists and also how it treated Helen as a character and the misogynistic aspect of the film. So even at that point, people were starting to point out the major issues with the film, Uh, although it was quite a commercial hit. 
But I think in hindsight, a lot of people have started to take on board those ideas. Yeah. And even more so after September the 11th, I think that's had a, a massive impact on the film for audiences and also for the filmmakers. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got to agree with you that September the 11th has something to do with it too. Cameron says it himself as a reason that True Lies 2 was never made, that terrorism simply wasn't funny after September the 11th. I think that's a shame in my opinion because I think terrorism celebrated a small victory when people started taking them more seriously in media. I'm not saying we need more stereotypical brown masses for our action hero characters to effortlessly mow through since Hollywood seems to think anyone with a tan has a bomb strapped to their chest. I'm saying that terrorism and terrorists in all their forms should be ridiculed. I do wish the film's villains in True Lies were less a caricature and had far more depth, but I appreciate that Cameron, at the times that he does, points at terrorism and says, look at these fucking idiots. And we need more films like that, in my opinion. Ah, uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. Okay, so I think we've discussed about all that we can discuss before making mm-hmm. our decision. So, Andy, final thoughts. Is True Lies the best of the forgotten, or simply best forgotten? I, I think the film is a well-made film. But for all the issues surrounding the story of Helen and the way it treats the terrorists, I think it's going to have to be best forgotten in this case. I don't feel it's a film that justifies itself in today's setting. I think it once did as a replacement for Bond, but now Bond's back and even stronger than ever. It doesn't really justify its place anymore. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Even beyond the challenges posed by 9-11, I don't think True Lies was ever destined to be remembered, really. Once Bond found its feet again, anything True Lies had to say just became completely redundant. There's plenty to enjoy in the spectacle, and Cameron and Schwarzenegger get a lot right in that first 50 minutes, in my opinion. But the film as a whole is so confused about what it wants to be that it never forges an identity of its own that's worth sticking to. And there are films that do that better as well. If you look at this year's Kingsman, The Secret Service, which is an effective Bond parody that maintains its own identity, I really can't see True Lies coming back into demand anytime soon because there are simply better films doing it elsewhere. Yeah, and even in the action context, there's a lot more films that owe True Lies a debt, but I even think they've overtaken it somewhat, especially in the uh, the Mission Impossible style film i feel they've really come into their own the last couple of years and they've filled that hole they have yeah there's no need for true lies anymore and though a blu-ray release might happen in the future at some point would it be in a cameron film of course it's going to sell i can't see people talking about it for too long afterwards yeah and it even feels to me in how cameron talks about this film that he's not entirely comfortable with it anymore no it's one that i think he's left behind it was a director for higher job even though his name is on the credits and I think it's perhaps one that you would rather people forget. So as much as it pains me to say this, as it's not a bad film by any stretch, because I have a lot of love for Cameron and Schwarzenegger, True Lies is probably best forgotten. Well, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, and remember to like, share, and subscribe. Join us again next time when Andy and I will be casting our eyes towards Joe Dante's little film, Inner Space. Bye. So long to all. Thanks for listening.